Hello and welcome to a bonus My Marvelous Year mini-sode. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. I am joined today by a special guest, writer and editor at Comic Book Herald, Shaw. Shaw, would you like to introduce yourself and let people know a little bit about you? Um, hi, I'm Vishal Golapali. I am a writer for a lot of places. I'm an editor for Comic Book Herald. I have a day job outside of comic book stuff, and I'm here to have a good time. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I brought you on because so we haven't we're not going to cover like a ton of Avenger stuff in the My Marvelous Year Club. Um, I think especially as we kind of like have moved through into the late 80s and into the 90s, we touched a little bit of the Simonson run. We kind of touched on uh, like kind of as the cross time Kangs thing came to a head. We hit those three issues, um, but we didn't read like the full run. So what I wanted to do today was to kind of touch on a couple runs. We're going to look at the Walt Simonson written Avengers in a little more detail. Then we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the transitional phase, um, you know, kind of because Avengers is in this interesting thing where like they're changing writers a lot, at least compared to, um, you know, kind of what you might think of, you know, post Roger Stern. And then uh, we'll talk a bit about the Larry Hammer run, which extends into the late 1990 and then into 1991. It's a very interesting kind of seven issues. Uh, but Vishal, I wanted to give you want to talk about it because you you're reading every Avengers comic. Do I have that right? <laughs> like, yeah. So a friend and I, we decided just for fun to start reading Avengers from the beginning because, you know, mm -hmm. for a while it's easy to understand why people are X-Men fans. But with the Avengers, I was like, why is this a franchise? How has this book kept going besides the movie? How did mm -hmm. we make it all the way to 2012? And so I, you know, started with the Stan Lee stuff and it wasn't great. And I kept going because this is kind of just what I do. I get obsessive about reading things. And I ended up finding tour in the Roy Thomas stuff and more importantly in the Englehart and later Jim Shooter stuff, there was something like genuinely there, something that I felt was unique to the Avengers as an idea and something that has also been missing from the property since I'd say 2005. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And that's, and this era is definitely an era of transition, you know, not only in terms of creative teams, but also just like trying to figure out like, who are the Avengers? I mean, it's kind of this ongoing thing in terms of their identity is like, in a lot of ways, the franchise's identity is this, it's this amorphous kind of shifting like membership thing. Yeah. Like it, it feels a lot of times when you're reading through the Avengers history, like every eighth issue was like a, a roster rotation issue. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, it's very common that that's happening. We see a bunch of that here in um, in the Simonson run and then into Larry Hama. So like this, this will take us as far as like chronology goes, like 1989 kind of through 1991. And I think in the My Marvelous Year Club, I think we are going to be reading uh, the Crossing crossover circa, when is that? Is that 91? Um, yeah, a little bit after Larry Hama completes his A little run. bit after. Okay, yeah, yeah. And like Galactic Storm comes after that too. But, you know, nonetheless, I want to talk a little bit about just like what is going on in this in this side of Avengers. So let's run it back to about 1989. Walt Simonson comes in and he's the writer 
for uh, the Avengers franchise for about nine issues through the 300th. Um, and he's joined by pencils by John Buscema, inks by Tom Palmer. Vishal, were you uh, or are you a fan of Walt Simonson's Thor? Uh, what is your familiarity with with kind of his work at Marvel? Yeah, Simonson's Thor is, to me, I think it's maybe one of the best superhero comic runs ever. Mm-hmm. So I was... I had high expectations going into this one, and for most of it, they it met my expectations. I had a lot of fun with this run. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me because it is so so. It just it kicks off with like a strange and unique roster in a way that I think like as a fan getting into Marvel Comics was not appealing. You know, it was kind of one of those things where I'm like, oh, this is like 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 we have uh Captain Marvel Monica Rambeau we have Dane Whitman Black Knight She-Hulk Doctor Druid and Namor like it's such a it's like um it's such a kind of like inside baseball like you yeah. really have to know your Marvel to get into it but now now as a fan that's been reading these comics for a long time like I'm actually I'm really interested in following this era and like I I find myself following certain characters I guess very closely like I'm very interested in what's going on with Monica Rambeau, obviously, because that character's had like a big 2021 post uh, post WandaVision. And then too, like, I just, I'm kind of endlessly fascinated by Dr. Druid as just this like total anomaly in Avengers history who played like a really significant role. Um, what are, who, who are your favorites or like, who are the characters that you really kind of focused in on uh, when you're reading this era? Uh, this era, it was definitely Monica Rambeau. She's, she was a favorite. She is a favorite. I'm glad she's starting to get adapted into things. Uh, Black Knight was also a really interesting one because I think both myself and my friend who I was reading this with, we both agreed that he was terrible, but in the way that made him fun to read. Like we enjoyed <laughs> whenever he yeah. was on page. Yeah, no, I can see that for sure. I, I definitely never would have considered myself a Black Knight fan, but I do. I, I'm often kind of laughing, you know, at his expense, but it, but kind of in this fun way. Um, he, he's an interesting character too, because like I think so. There's the Cy Spurrier run that's going on in 2021 here, and uh, he did a Cy Spurrier wrote a King in Black one shot, and it's the first time for me where I was like, oh. I think I like Black Knight comics now. <laughs> I was like, oh, I think I might be into this. Um, so he's potentially going to have a moment, I think, with his presence in the MCU Eternals. But yeah, at this stage, he's he's just kind of a he's kind of a mess. He's kind of constantly taken over by his blade, the curse of that. Um, he he becomes like living metal armor throughout this run in ways that are just like very strange and comical. It, it's all kind of enjoyable, honestly. Um, the big thing that that Simonson does, I think, with he does two things. He one, he so he has Captain Marvel, Monica Rambeau as the leader of the Avengers, right? So it's this it's this phase of Avengers where like familiar faces are almost totally gone. We get Thor kind of tapped in throughout this, but he even he almost feels cursory. Like it doesn't feel like Simonson continuing his Thor, you know, in any measure. He's just like a very kind of just like along for the ride kind of Avenger. But then you have Monica Rambeau leading, and she's very much questioning her leadership and whether or not she is fit. And then you have Dr. Druid who is increasingly sort of um, possessed, I guess, if you will, or or sort of, you know, manipulated by um, these outside forces, which are revealed to be Kang Nebula related. Right. Um, Even he like digging into Monica Rambeau's own concerns about her leadership. What's your read on Monica as leader of the Avengers? Do you feel like, this does it justice? Does this do the character a service? And like, did she get enough time, I guess? 
Okay, so this is an interesting thing because Monica Rambeau, before Walt Simonson's run, I thought she was a great leader. Something that, like, in Warren Ellis's Next Wave gets used as a joke at her expense. Like, yeah. when I ended up reading her actual tenure as leader, I thought, no, Monica's really cool. And something a little inside baseball here is that Walt Simonson has talked about he was tasked with removing Monica from leadership. Like that was one of the editorial mandates when he started his run. And he didn't yeah. like that. He didn't want to do that. So everything he does with Dr. Drew and everything he does with how Monica ends up not being leader anymore is in an effort to make her not look frail and weak because right. that would just be the worst thing to happen to her. Yeah. And I, I think like it's a, it's a tricky balance to pull off because I definitely kind of without that background and jumping right into the Simonson era, it, it can feel early on like, yeah, like she's like, she lacks a confidence. You might, it, not that she, she's new to the role and her questioning if she can be leader is one thing, but there's sort of, I don't know, like we get so much of Dr. Druid's negativity towards her that you don't get as much balance in terms of Monica being a hero who is capable and like, frankly on a power level like can do just like absolutely wild things like her abilities and her ability to contribute to the avengers is is absolutely out of this world um but then i do think by the end of this i mean simonson's approach to okay if i have to get her off this team which sucks i think is an editorial mandate but if he has to do that he at least tries to give her a like a heroic turn you know basically being like well she's off because she saved the day. It's a very Marvel way, I guess, of removing a character with a a positive focus if you have to do that. Um, it's disappointing, though, I think, to see her removed from this lineup because once Monica's taken out in a, a Namor Marina <laughs> plot line, which uh, did very little for me. I'm just I'm <laughs> rarely hooked by by Submariner plots, although his wife turning into a giant uh, literal Leviathan is is something that <laughs> is interesting. Um, but it, once Monica's out, the team is literally Black Knight, She-Hulk, um, Thor, kind of, and uh, and Dr. Druid. Like, it's nothing. Like, it's this very, like, interesting, like, what even are the Avengers at this point? You know, they're they're absolutely, like, nothing that we're familiar with. It's very, very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right. So, Simonson's run, it builds to, um, it, it, kind of throughout, it's building this, like, cross-time Kang's council and their efforts to manipulate uh, Dr. Druid to kind of control the Avengers. There's some really fun stuff with, like, you know, who's the prime Kang, Kang's manip- scheming against one another. Do you like the madness of of time travel cross time Kangs. Cause I, I'm definitely a fan. I would say. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. It is kind of an extension of a previous arc, the once and future Kang, which I believe was by Roger Stern mm. where Kang meets this council of Kangs and decides to kill them all because he has to be the best one. Right. And it is really fun. It gets into some really zany and wild time travel stuff. And Walt Simonson here was like, okay, We'll take this council of Kangs and we'll just make them bigger. We'll show Kang as part of this system that is much bigger than anything he can tackle on his own. And in doing so, I think he ends up creating what is now considered a really like modern idea with like the Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four. Mm -hmm. You can really see the seeds of that coming here. 
Yeah, definitely. Or like in Rick and Morty, like there's the council of, of what are they, Ricks, right? Yeah. And that's kind of spinning off that idea, both those ideas as well. But you're right. I, I think it's definitely, it's become a fun concept. It's like kind of unwieldy if you like really try to think about it, but this being Marvel Comics, you don't have to. <laughs> like <laughs> it can be Kangs from a bazillion timelines and and that's honestly just fun. I, I kind of hope it's a thing they play with in ant-man 3 um with kang coming into the scene like the fact that you can have multiple versions of kangs i mean i guess the history of that even extends back to you know i am ramatut and i am Amortis, and i am all these different guises as well uh but in this instance it's it's all them in their kang phase i would say that's kind of my favorite that remains my favorite part of this simonson run um is is him spinning out and really expanding the Kang core concept in this kind of wild cosmic story that again, like if you're going to have this small, really reduced lineup, I don't think it makes a ton of sense to keep them on earth and fight the battles that the Avengers typically fight, but it's fun to put them in a spaceship and throw them up against Kang Nebula um, in this like absolutely wild cosmic story with Dr. Druid, you know, kind of possessed and sacrificing himself. Do you think, um, do you think Simonson's run? Do you think it like, do you wish it had gone longer or do you feel like going 300 issues is kind of the amount you needed from this? I wish Simonson's run had gone longer because I think he showed this understanding of the Avengers as a concept as like this. The Avengers at their peak are a workplace drama in the same way that the X-Men are often about found family, where mm -hmm. the Avengers, they have to deal with stuff you have to deal in the office. There's crises, there's problems with management, there's payroll stuff. And a lot of people might not find this fun, but I think this kind of abstraction of these tedious things that we have to deal with in the professional world into superheroics is really, really cool. And just this idea that these are not your family. These are people you work with. Many of these people are your friends, but at the end of the day, you go home and you're not with them. And Simonson seems to understand that very well. And I would have loved to see him do more. Yeah, it is. It is this interesting thing where like, you know, it just again, it's just that thing of even though he gets to write, you know, almost a year's worth of comics, the franchise just feels so transitory, transitory. And just like, you know, it doesn't it's like, what is that? What do the Avengers want to be at this point? You know, there's a, there's a real feel of like, what is this comic? trying to be like trying to find itself um i think that you know that happens too as we get caught up in the inferno event and in the the tail end of these we get um some really fun ideas as well like you get jarvis you know fighting his own battles and you get kind of a jarvis centrist focus or jarvis um focused issue with him in the middle of of inferno and running into the heroes as he does so you get reed and sue beginning their tenure this is also kind of the kickoff i'll say of like hey everyone's an avenger type Marvel stories because you get Reed and Sue joining for a spell because they're off the Fantastic Four for a minute here around this this point in continuity. Um, as we progress into like the the John Byrne written stuff, you get Spider-Man on the team um, as a even in like a um, what do you call it? Like a, a sub committee role <laughs> or whatever, the, a reserve role. Um, and again, it's this thing of like they're really trying to mix up roster. And I, I think one thing we find by the time we get back to the Larry Hammer run, which is kind of the, the final issues we're going to talk about, 326, 333. The Avengers do, I guess, to me, it's like, it just feels a lot more home when it's like, oh, yeah, we got Captain America and Iron Man and, uh, and Thor and Vision. And just like some of these, there are certain characters, I think, that that do make the Avengers tick, you know, like it, it can't. I don't know. It's like, does it? I guess here's the question for you is, does it work for you when the lineup is like very far removed from 
the familiar core. Honestly, yeah, I I've found yeah. that Avengers is at its peak when the majority of the roster is characters who don't have their own solo books because sure. When Captain America's on the Avengers team, he's going through his own stuff in Captain America and either you don't acknowledge that, which generally leads to him kind of being the static character who doesn't really have any character development or you do acknowledge that and he disappears from the team for large stretches. Right. And neither of that is great. But when you get characters like Hawkeye and Tigra and Monica Rambo on there and you can see them grow into their roles and you can see them get the majority of their personal development in the Avengers book, it's so much more satisfying. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting take. I, I hear you on that. I, I think, too, there are certain there are definitely moments in this, like in the Simonson run, even like he introduces the forgotten one. Gilgamesh, who it turns out is in Eternal. And I find myself anytime the Eternals pop up, which actually happens a lot in Avengers in this era, like I'm I'm especially intrigued right now, you know, just because they're going to be this huge turning point in the MCU and like they're going to be getting all this attention. I'm really invested in the Kieran Gill and Isada Ribich run that's going on right now in 2021. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, when a character like Gilgamesh shows up, you can do kind of anything you want with a character on that tier, you know, with a character on that level in a way that is definitely liberating and, and kind of interesting. Um, so, all right. So Avengers, the Simonson run, again, it's fairly short, 291 to 300. And then we're out. And then we transition kind of into like, you know, kind of a holding pattern, basically, with Grunewald and, and Mar um, Ralph Macchio taking over until John Byrne comes in. Now, we didn't plan to or, or kind of schedule to talk about like John Byrne's I don't know, relatively short stint as as Avengers writer, but it goes for, um, I don't know, like 15 to 20 ish issues. Uh, it crosses over with his West Coast Avengers and what he's trying to do in Axe of Vengeance. Um, we don't need to sink into like every detail of this. I, I guess what I want to say is the things that I like about this era and this this John Byrne run is the use of Eternals, I just find fascinating. Like <laughs> I like I just said with Gilgamesh, I read it through that lens now. And like issues like 305 to 310, is like like totally an eternal story in a way that honestly I was very surprised by um kind of skipping over these in a lot of my you know because really this whole era of Avengers like almost none of it gets held up as like canon or like you know oh here's your 15 essential Avengers collections like people don't really talk about this stuff um is there anything in the transition between Simonson and um uh Hama that you found like worth the time <laughs> effectively Sadly, no. John Byrne's yeah. run is, like you mentioned, it's not really held up as this, like, one of these essential Avengers storylines, because what he does is torch the entire franchise and torch a lot of these central characters. The biggest offender uh, offense being how he handles Scarlet Witch. Yeah, right. And everything he does with, like, Vision and Scarlet Witch, everything he does to the West Coast Avengers, like... Not to get too negative about it, but I think that he genuinely like damaged the franchise all the way until Heroes Return, where yeah. it just wasn't able to get its own heart back because John Byrne, in doing what he does, and he does this with a lot of comics, is he tries to revamp them entirely. He tries to make them something that he understands rather than what they were. And yeah. for a lot of people, this works. His Man of Steel run is very popular. But for me, it felt like just taking what was good about the Avengers and saying, we don't want to do that anymore. Yeah, that's interesting because it definitely, 
you know, it's this thing of like when you, the nineties get a bad rap across the board, right? Like there's a lot of, yeah. I mean, just a lot of like, definitely as a, as a fan getting into comics when I did, you know, more than a decade ago, it was like, it it was a joke I could make without even having read any of them. It would be like, Oh, nineties comics, you know? And it's like, that's the thing that still happens a lot. Now there's a fair amount, like anything, like there's some truth, but there's also some nuance to that with Avengers stories though. You're, it's an interesting point that you raised because it is like, okay, after Burn, like the franchise has a really hard time finding a rhythm and finding really captivating stories. I think there's some stuff in there where like there are interesting moments and and stuff that is worth going back and revisiting. Um, it, although I, I guess I will say too, like I, that's kind of a, a challenge I've had with the Avengers, I guess, in general, you know, is it's interesting to consider how massive this franchise is culturally versus I guess what you were saying in your, your start of your journey your you know, when you're basically asking like, why is this? Like, how did this thing survive so long and what made it tick? Cause when you do read through their history, you know, and we're reading year by year through Marvel history, we're not reading everything in the Avengers, but a fair amount it's, it's rarely the standout for me, I guess a lot of times. Um, what do you think it is that the, this Avengers era needed? Like what, what do you think it is that like, kind of like when the team works, that makes it tick. I think specifically they needed to not keep trying to out climax themselves. Mm. Like a lot of justice league is a big example of like every arc has to be this big event that brings the justice league together because otherwise what's the point of what's happening. But the Avengers as an idea are very different. They are like this bureaucratic team that is, that works with the government to put out fires. They're not a crisis manager essentially yeah so i think john byrne especially did this where like everything he did was like catastrophic to some degree or it was like imploding the avengers or there was some or the other really high stakes conflict going on and it just needed to breathe and allow almost a kind of slice of life mentality to happen because when the avengers work it's almost like this is what an average day of crime fighting is for these really weird heroes that otherwise wouldn't be interacting with each other. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I I can see that for sure. I do think, um, the addition of Cersei of the Eternals here again is a thing that I did not expect to find as captivating as I did. Um, and again, part of this is just like the, the Eternals offer for me this kind of rarity in, in Marvel right now, which is like pretty giant blind spot you know where i'm like kind of fascinated by how these characters have actually interacted with the marvel universe because i for the longest time was just like yeah that's a jack kirby miniseries that i didn't really enjoy why is this going to be a big thing and now i'm finding a lot of reasons to enjoy it um but cersei actually offers like like parties (laughs) for the avengers (laughs) like like those slice of life moments where they she's like hey i'm having a party come hang out um in ways that i actually think are really appealing and they they kind of need her character in this era, I, I actually think helps a ton, even if her power set is like completely, I couldn't even tell you, like <laughs> I could yeah. not begin to tell you what it is that Cersei does. It, it, it's anything and everything. Um, all right, let, let's transition to, so we get to Larry Hama scripting uh, with Avengers 326. This is circa November, 1990. Okay. So we're getting into late nineties into 1991. You got Paul Ryan pencils, Tom Palmer inks, Max Shield on colors, at least at the start of this. Um, and his runs pretty short. Seven issues going to go to 333. Uh, this is a very interesting run. Um, it is pretty focused, honestly. 
Uh, and it's very focused on having a conversation about race in a lot of ways and introducing the character of rage, uh, a new African-American hero that is introduced here. And then would go on actually to become a more central part of new warriors. So despite the fact that he begins really, you know, I actually didn't realize he like he begins in Avengers very, very thoroughly. Um, what, what do you, I guess before we dig into rage, cause there's a lot to talk about there. Um, what do you make of this run kind of as a whole? Is it something that you hold up as underrated in Avengers history? Um, forgotten something you don't like where, where do you stand? Yeah. I, I think this is like the definition of a hidden gem where like, yeah. it's very easy to overlook it. And it's very easy to just kind of forget that Larry Hama did anything on Avengers. Cause like you said, it's like a seven or eight issue run. It doesn't yeah. do much continuity wise. But there's so much charm in a lot of this, like rage is obviously a big part of it. But even when rage isn't there, like the interactions between the Avengers have like this life to them that's really enjoyable. And Larry Hama feels like he's enjoying himself writing it and it leads to an enjoyable reading experience. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. I I was quite impressed by these comics. I, I think there's. There's a trick to this where I think all of the all of the small stuff, all of the Avengers interactions, them spending time together, them um so they get they lose their like whatever the semantics are, you know, their their US charter to be Avengers, which like you said, like it's a very bureaucratic organization. Like they're they're constantly like, oh, government said we can't do it, guess we can't, you know, like in a way that I think like Justice League or other superhero franchises, like that doesn't matter. They just do what they do because, you know the day needs saving. Um, but the Avengers, you know, they, as a workaround, they uh, go to the United Nations and they become a more global and, and literally like planetary size organization. And there's some really interesting stuff about like, it's the chair being because we might have literal aliens or inhumans or Atlanteans. And it's like, it's, it's like, like trying to, to offer a form of inclusion in that Marvel universe specific mm -hmm. way. That is honestly kind of interesting to see the Avengers playing with. And then, too, you have the whole saga of Rage, which is him coming in and right off the bat, basically just like holding Captain America in particular accountable, which makes sense for the lack of diversity, for lack specifically of of any black individuals on the Avengers roster. Um, he doesn't mention Monica Rambeau. He mentions like, oh, you had Falcon. That was, um, you know, literally like Henry Geyer coming in and telling them you have to have Falcon on the team. Uh, and Black Panther, he kind of discounts and it'd be conveniently leaves out Monica Rambeau, but regardless, um, you know, Rach has, has many valid points. Um, and it, those conversations alone are interesting. I think where this, this run loses me often is Hama's actually the, the big, like earth ending, uh, alien and, yeah. and mystic and cosmic threats. Those are like nothing because <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're confusing, I guess in the moment, but also, I don't know. I do have a hard time as a fan with, you know, the, the knowledge in the sense of like, well, I also know these don't become anything yeah. and that absence of meaningful continuity hurts. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it limits the, that piece of it I'm less into, but then when we get back to the actual internal team units, I'm like, this is awesome. This is really good. Yeah. Completely agree here. Like, Larry Hama's run is I think it's really fun because you can go from there's a literal like one page turn where rage is confronting someone who is throwing stuff at him for joining the Avengers and then saying I have to do this because the only way to to teach them tolerance is to work from within and yeah. it's this really like impassioned speech about the idea of making the world a 
much more inclusive place. And then the very next page is these absolutely buck wild, just abstract concepts coming in, screaming yeah. about how they're the tetrarchs of entropy and are going to take <laughs> all the Avengers away. <laughs> right, right, totally. No, that's that's the perfect summation of what this of what this era is trying or what this book is trying to be. Um, I, I do think the rage stuff, I think is it's kind of surprising. And it's surprising because one, Marvel historically does not handle <laughs> racial issues. If they handle them at all, it does not handle them well. There are exceptions. Uh, but generally that's that's a failing of of the company and something that even today, right? We're we're pushing for for more from them and, and their efforts here and there, but it's a progress, right? It's it's a yeah. thing that's you know a work in progress. Larry Hama obviously has uh, a very good voice on that. He's an Asian American himself. Um, there's a really interesting essay. I, I don't know if you've read it, Vishal, but I, I'll link it here in the show notes if I remember to. Um, that Christopher Priest wrote about uh, his time. It's called. It's I think it's something to the effect of like the last time I'm ever going to talk about race, and it's a very extensive thing. But it talks a lot about his time at Marvel in the editorial bullpens, and it really gives you some insight into just kind of like the racial structure of Marvel creative. And Larry Hama plays a big role in that because he's kind of a mentor to Priest and somebody that Priest really looks up to. And it's, I think with that backdrop in mind, like there's a level of trust and there's a level of thinking that like, oh, Larry Hama knows what he's talking about, right? Um, as opposed to the ways that a lot of these Avengers types of, like if you told me, okay, in 1990, uh, an Avengers writer introduced a black man called Rage and he talks a lot about race with Captain America. A lot of warning bells are going off, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like I'm, I'm concerned that is not going to go well. I think in the hands of this specific creator, it, I don't know that it's perfect. Probably, probably it is not, and probably there's really good criticism out there on it. Um, but at least my read on it was like, these are interesting conversations to have. Steve Rogers is the one who frequently steps in it, frequently makes a mistake of his interactions. He reacts angrily. At being called out initially, right? He basically says like race has nothing to do with it and kind of like all lives matters uh, rage initially, but he does then listen and, and try to learn even as he is kind of consistently wrong. I don't know. What was your, what was your perception or your reaction to how these issues actually cover um, obviously what are challenging topics? Yeah, I agree. Like I can't speak 100% on the authenticity of it because like Larry Hama's Asian American, I'm not black myself. So mm -hmm. there's some nuance there that I'm sure can be criticized and hopefully has been criticized. And I would love to see those conversations as well. But I think what it has that a lot of other stuff doesn't is this sincerity to it. Like yeah. when Rage complains about racial stuff, it is because Larry Hama himself has experience this to a degree and is saying no this is a problem that we need to deal with yeah and it comes through in the writing like you mentioned captain america is angry at first and then he starts listening and he starts saying oh rage has a good point here there's this scene where rage boards a subway car and a woman just looks horrified until captain america walks in yes. and captain america's like oh you know it's because you're a big guy wearing a mask and rage is like so are you and it mm -hmm. stops the whole thing dead and really makes everyone, including the readers, think about this. And it works really well, at least for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that scene definitely caught my eye um, as being very effective. I think you're right. And I think, too, like one rage rage has become like he's a very captivating character as the series progresses. He's got this kind of a Peter Parker esque beginning in some ways, but like his bullying as a 13 year old who developed powers is specifically racially motivated. And it's stuff that's extremely difficult 
to read as it should be, you know, just the, the hate in his origin is, is it's, you know, it's intolerance, right? It's racism. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what causes him to then fall into the, the vat of toxicity that creates his transformation. You know, that's, that is his history. That is his beginnings. Um, I've seen a lot of conversation, you know, regarding this character every time he comes up that basically it was like, you know, he's kind of a repetition of Luke Cage in some ways. Um, I, there's definitely similarities, I think, in how these characters get their beginnings. Although certainly in Rage with his youth and kind of his inexperience, he does present differently. And a bit again, like Luke Cage is, is black exploitation era, 70s, Rage is early 90s. There is a difference in attitude and perspective, I think, um, in how these characters were created. Uh, and, but, you know, Rage in these issues, he is the first thing he's doing is brushing up, you know, drug operations in his in his city and, and stuff like that too so it's there's definitely luke cage parallels um well before luke cage would go on to become like a 2000s kind of defining avenger uh but yeah i mean i was I, every time rage was on page i was like i want to i want to hear what he's saying <laughs> like this yeah. is a character i want to pay attention to um and i feel like in that regard it's pretty successful yeah i think one of the most interesting parts of this run or about rage specifically is that we find out a few issues in that he's really only like 15 or 16 years old. He is a young kid. He is not someone who should have these burdens on him. And it is tragic that he has to deal with what he has to deal with. And it makes it so much more powerful when he does literally anything that he's doing, because this is a kid taking responsibility because the adults around him won't. Right. Right. No, it is. It's that voice. It's like a very strong, voice of youth when you realize his age like how because that's the thing too is like he sounds very like he sounds so intelligent he sounds so wise for someone who is 15 or 16 and i think that's an interesting angle as well to be like yeah like a lot of times like it's it's youth-led resistance it's youth like a lot of times even for someone like myself like some of my 30s it's like even even now like i'm not that old yet (laughs) but it's like (laughs) i have to put my hope in like younger generations understanding this stuff and being different and being better and I feel like Rage kind of taps into that potential as well, where it is like, yeah, like who's going to push the Avengers? You know, like they're they're set in their ways in a lot of ways. Who's going to push them to actually be progressive and actually make change? And it's got to be somebody like Rage, you know, um, even though it's obviously like a pretty short spurt. And, you know, certainly you could look at this and then argue like, well, what change actually came to this? Right. And that's that's a failing yeah. of Marvel and of the Avengers, you know, because the lineup doesn't change much from here. All right. Uh, any other takes from the the Hammer run that you really want to hone in on, or um, or you think deserve like a closer look? Um, there's not too much. I like the art a lot. I think the very first cover of Larry Hama's run is like really striking, and one of yeah. those things I tend to fixate on like covers and specifically covers that had I been alive and or reading comics during this time. What would have mm-hmm. made me say, oh, I want to check this issue out if I wasn't already reading the book. And the first issue of Larry Hama's run is it's a weird cover because it's like a pretty standard one. Then it's got these like small, very light font text boxes on them. It doesn't feel like a comic book. It feels almost like an obituary. Yeah, and it yeah. works really well. Yeah, no, it's got that. It's got like kind of almost a movie poster vibe to it mm-hmm. where it's, you know, Earth's Mightiest Heroes are down. You know, now it's up to Iron Man. Good luck, Shellhead. Like, I, I do enjoy, I, I definitely enjoy caption covers, you know? So like those, I think Excalibur's pretty famous for this. Like, yeah. kind of like gag covers, you know, where it's making a joke. Um, I tend to enjoy that. I, I feel like you don't see the sort of movie poster caption approach nearly as often. It is interesting. It's it's striking um, in that it's different. 
Yeah, I think the other thing I did really enjoy was the the last two issues he does, the Doctor Doom little story there, was genuinely yeah. really delightful in a lot of ways. Like, it starts off with Rage's grandmother baking the Avengers cookies for their, like, gala or whatever, and that's mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. And it ends with Rage being the only smart one in the room to figure out that Doctor Doom was lying to everyone, and Doctor Doom saying, this kid's pretty good, I'm not going to kill you all. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's pretty enjoyable. Um, he does, yeah. Rage does throw one of his granny's uh, cupcakes in Doctor Doom's face. Uh, Doombot, of course, but you know, <laughs> it's pretty fun. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. It, it's pretty compelling. There's there's some nice moments in that too. Like there's a panel of uh, Vision. Like uh, this is so. This is, I guess, for lack of a better term, White Vision, right? So this is mm-hmm. post West Coast Avengers destruction and being rebuilt, and you know, kind of ending the marriage that he had with with Wanda, obviously. Um, but there's, he's like being flocked to by all these women at this party. And there's a panel of Scarlet, Witch just staring daggers through all of them. That is like, it's nothing. It's not called out. It's just a visual. It's pretty well done. It's yeah. very, very memorable. Um, but yeah, I, I like these issues. I'm a sucker for any Dr. Doom story. It's like, obviously like anytime there's doom, like it's not really doom. <laughs> it's like, it's always a doom bot, but nonetheless, it's, it's very entertaining. Um, I I'm unclear on what his goals are aside from just messing up their party, but oftentimes that doesn't matter for me. <laughs> like, yeah, well, so, doom's here. To do with his mother along. as usual, as usual. I, I did appreciate that here too. So the other thing that, um, Hama does is, so he, he restructures the Avengers lineup. You have your core lineup, then you have your reserves and in the reserves, he, he makes rage kind of the buildup of the first few issues is captain America announcing rage as one of the reserve Avengers. Um, and, and then, um, also Sandman, which is like the, the Marvel villain Sandman, which is the real, uh, kind of like left turn, real kind of wrench of, of throwing Flint Marco into the joint as a villain who has turned the corner or trying to turn the corner. I'll be honest. I didn't realize this was like a part of Marvel history, uh, but there's a really good moment in those doom issues where uh sandman is like he's not making a your mama joke but he's like he starts talking about doom's mom and it's just like i'm just like no stop i'm like giving him the, the cut it off signal and do make some comment too he's like how dare you how dare you talk about my mother it's a nice touch it's it's good scripting what did you think about uh what do you think about sandman being an avenger i think it's great like i mentioned hawkeye earlier i think hawkeye if i had to pick one he would be my favorite avenger because his story is just really compelling and just yeah. the concept of the Avengers, like from Cap's Kooky Quartet, it's a group of villains who have reformed and genuinely do want to help people. And the Avengers being the place for that, it's where these villains who aren't great, these horrible people, but they are people who were misguided, did things for the wrong reasons, and have repented and understand what yeah. they should be doing. And Sandman, it didn't stick, obviously, but that was a really good beat for him. And I kind of wish it stuck because I like when those kind of things happen. Yeah, it kind of makes me wish um, that was something that we saw happening in Avengers more often, like in the in the modern era, because, yeah, you're right. It's such a part of their history of taking in villains or or misguided (laughs) heroes turned turned heroes, turned Avengers. Um, And I feel like that I'm probably missing some, but like I feel like that has been less a part of their story uh, of late. I mean, definitely in the Jason Aaron run, I don't think that really happens hardly at all, unless you count blade, but I wouldn't personally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's cause it's an interesting opportunity. You know, it's that suicide squad level thing, except you're very, very earnestly saying like they are, they have given a complete, you know, 
chance at reformation, a, a complete chance at truly turning a new leaf. And I think oftentimes that leads to really fun character beats. Um, or like, like in X-Men, you see it with Juggernaut, you know, every, every five years, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, character stories like that, I think oftentimes are a lot of fun. All right. Any other wrecks you have? Um, so for people who are into the Avengers, like as someone who has gone through this era, how far along are you or, or have you finished? Um, I'm in the middle of Busey X Avengers and Thunderbolts era. So okay. getting back to some pretty enjoyable stuff after the 90s. Yeah, right. No, that's the that's when things start to get recommended again. Yeah. <laughs> across <laughs> most sites. Um, what are before that point, though, like what are what are like other hidden gems or things that you're like, this was surprisingly fun and I feel like more people should check it out. So a really weird one is Operation Galactic Storm, which I think you mentioned earlier is a yeah. pretty big like crossover. It is bizarre because it's like a 17 issue crossover. And honestly, 16 issues of them are not very good. It's a very <laughs> dull read for 16 issues. But yeah. that 17th issue is genuinely one of the most compelling Avengers stories and just Marvel stories in general that I've ever read because it's all about the idea of like, what do you do to this entity that has committed a sin that is essentially unforgivable when yeah. you're superheroes how does this moral conflict come into play and it is both like a really interesting ideological debate as well as such a strong move forward for these characters on the team that like when i finished reading this i was like oh no this is good because i had read so much <laughs> that wasn't right before yeah. it yeah, oh, that's funny. Okay, I'm interested in re-exploring that now. We are going to read that crossover in the club, so I'm I'm excited to check that back out now. Because uh, I, I remember having the experience of that. being like, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I remember having the experience of being like, yeah, this is fine, I guess. It's long, but now, now I need to actually sink my teeth back in and, and give it its <laughs> full due so I can get to that 17th. All right, what, what was the other one? Yeah, so a couple runs before Simonson's, because I think between Simonson and Hama, there isn't really much. After Hama, there again isn't really much until you get to Hero's Return. Yeah. But there, before Larry Hama, you get like Steve Englehart's West Coast Avengers, which is weird and fun. And you can see a lot of its own DNA in like Hickman's Avengers, for instance. Like hmm. there's that arc during Original Sin where the Avengers kind of keep going forward in time. That's a Steve Englehart original. Hmm. So there's a lot of really cool stuff like that. My two favorite runs would probably be Roger Stearns and Jim Shooters, but there's even more on top of that, like David Michelini, who are all really good writers at the time. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right, thanks. This has been fun, Vishal. Um, yeah. I think uh, we'll include links where people can find you. I think, uh, yeah, definitely we will continue checking out some of the Avengers, although not all of them. We'll have to have you back on for uh, for a handful of these Avengers conversations if, uh, if schedules align. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for cool. having me. Yeah. Thanks for listening to My Marvelous Year. I'm Dave. You can find me at Comic Book Herald anywhere on social. ComicBookHerald.com is the site I run. You can find Vishal at Vgula87. That's V-G-U-L-L-A-87 on Twitter for more from him as well as writing and editing over at Comic Book Herald. Thanks for listening. Music for the show is by Disasterpiece, D-I-S-A-S-T-E-R-P-E-A-C-E. And, of course, uh, our regular co-host, Zach, taking hiatus for this one, is at My Marvelous Year on social. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You can find all the upcoming issues and notes in the show notes. And you can support the show over at patreon.com slash year. Ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening. And, as always, we'll see you next year. See you next year. Uh -huh.